I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. I'm Fiona Davison, and this is Gardening with the RHS. In today's show, I'm starting by the seaside. Oh, I wish I'm not. I'm in the spare bedroom, but let's pretend. There's lots to consider when growing in the seaside environment, and it presents gardeners with some wonderful opportunities, but quite a few challenges too. It really takes us back to what I think of as one of the fundamental principles of gardening. You need to grow the right plant in the right place. That's what we'll spend today focusing on, as the show is packed full of advice. As well as coastal gardening, we'll be discussing how to find the perfect spot for your houseplants and how to best assess the quirks of your own garden conditions. Plus, we'll be hearing a preview from the forthcoming edition of our RHS members magazine, The Garden. So back to the coast. Let's hear what we can learn from this rather extreme growing environment. Jerry Price is known as the Coastal Gardener. She runs a small specialist plant nursery and garden design practice based on the Isle of Wight. I spoke to her about how she copes with the challenges of growing by the sea. So growing by the sea has a few additional challenges. Someone once described them as the unholy trinity of wind, salt and sand. The uh, mantra that everybody uses is the right plant in the right place and it's as true by the coast as it is anywhere else. So what you need to do is select the plants that will cope with the wind, the salt and potentially with sand. So we have lots of native coastal plants, sea hollies, sea thrift, sea campions. So a really good place to start is looking at the names. So if the common name includes sea, you're on to a winner. In Latin, that's maritima. So if you look out for those, it's a really good place to start and you know that those will cope with the conditions and then you can start looking for other plants with similar characteristics. So my advice would be if you've got a garden by the sea is to think about whether you can add any additional protection from the wind. So you might consider a semi-permeable barrier, uh, maybe a slatted fence or perhaps plant a hedge. But bear in mind, if you do that, you might be losing the very reason you bought the property in the garden in the first place, which is the sea view. So the next thing to do, if you don't want to obscure the view, is to create the conditions where plants can thrive. So consider the soil, 
potentially improve it, but generally I'd say choose the plants that can cope with the conditions. There's a whole range of plants. Tamarisk grows really well along the coastline. So look at what's growing in the wild and as always, look at what other people are growing in their gardens too. One of the other things about coastal gardens is people assume two things about them. One, that they're always sunny and two, that they have sandy and free-draining soil. And it's not necessarily so. So if you've got a house attached to your coastal garden, then somewhere is going to be in shade for part of the day. And not all soils are free-draining. So where I live, we have a blue slipper clay, which is a really heavy, thick clay, not far below the surface. So we've got about 12 inches of soil and rubble and shingle. And then beneath that, we've got clay. So it's worth having a really good look at what your soil is and not making too many assumptions. All you need to do is dig a hole and you'll soon find out what's there. If you look at the native plants that grow along our shorelines, you'll find that there are various characteristics that they have. And once you've identified those, it gives you a good idea of what else might grow. So things like sea hollies have really hard, thick leaves like a holly. And so they are more able to withstand the conditions, both wind and salt, than a much softer leaf. Then you've got things like tamarisk, which has really fine foliage and really bendy branches. So the wind will whip through it, it will blow around a lot, but nothing will snap. And the leaves aren't affected by the salt because they're so tiny, they don't have a large surface area for the salt to sit on. Maybe succulent-type plants would be something else to look at, something called lampranthus or mesembryanthemum, those fleshy leaves. And so they're good at storing water. They also have coating on them, which stops the salt from settling on them. So it's really worth looking at the type of plant that grows by the sea and the characteristics that it has, and then finding other plants that might cope as well. And we're really lucky here on the Isle of Wight. We're so far south that the temperatures are generally above freezing and we can grow semi-exotic things like echiums. So echiums grow like weeds in my garden and they're fantastic. You know, furry leaves, another characteristic to look out for. And they throw up huge blue flower spikes, much loved by the bees. We've designed gardens on the beach, on the top of cliff tops, all kinds of extreme places. So we've just completed planting a garden on a cliff top on the eastern tip of the island, which gets the full force of the southwesterly winds. And so we've planted predominantly coastal native plants, but with some exotics as well, because one of the things about living by the coast is that the temperatures tend to be higher. So we're less impacted by frost, particularly on the island because we're so far south. But if you live by the sea, the chances are the temperatures will be a degree or two warmer than inland. So we've been able to plant quite a lot of more exotic plants that perhaps inland would struggle. So it's a great opportunity. It's not just a problem having a coastal garden. Over the last few years, we've experienced extremes of weather. So we've had really heavy rainfall in March and by May we've been in drought conditions. So it's become more and more challenging and interesting to find plants that will cope with water logging and summer drought. 
So Agapanthus, Erigeron, the little Mexican fleabane daisy, will cope with both those conditions. And that's going to be something that applies to people not just on coastal fringes, but elsewhere in the country too. And it's not all doom and gloom. You know, there's some great plants that will tolerate those conditions and there'll be more added to the list, I'm sure, as the years go by and we all have more experience of it. So much useful advice from Jerry there, including our favourite RHS saying, right plant, right place. It's such an age-old adage that's repeated in gardening guides from long ago. Even some of our earliest books in the Lindley Library, dating from Elizabethan times, tell you to think about what your garden conditions are like before choosing your plants. This time of year is the ideal time to start assessing your outdoor space. For example, I know my garden's very shady, like a lot of city gardens, has clay soil and tends to flood in the winter and it's underwater right now as we speak. And that means I have to think about it a bit like a woodland garden and grow shade-loving plants. You can make the most of anything, really, if you put your mind to it. Lee Burkle, a.k.a. the Garden Ninja, is a designer from Manchester who helps people transform their gardens. So he's the perfect person to help us understand our growing conditions. So assessing your plot is really important, both in garden design and successful gardening. And January and early winter is a really good time to do that because you've basically got the bare bones of the garden, there's nothing distracting you and you can really start to plan how you want to eventually design and implement your own gardens at home. I'd say the most important three things to look out for when you're starting to garden is first of all is the aspect and what we mean by the aspect of your garden is how does the sun move over your property, over the garden throughout the course of the day. Now in the winter time the sun's a lot lower in the northern hemisphere but it will still give you a good idea of where you might have full sun in the middle of the day, where you might have pockets of shade and just how the sun moves around the garden. Because what you don't want to do is to start designing or gardening with a garden in mind where it's full of sun, warm flowers and plants and things that need a lot of sunlight if you don't have that. But it's not to say it's a problem if you've got shade, but it's just really important that you understand where the light moves around the garden throughout the day. Because it will enable you as a mindful gardener to be able to pick plants that are going to thrive there rather than rolling the dice and just giving it a go and seeing if that plant will work. So aspects really important. The second important part is to really look at the soil type that you have. And for a lot of gardeners, this can feel a bit daunting because you might not even know what the soil type is. Now, there are three main types of soil. You've got sandy soil, you've got clay soil, and you've got silty soil. And it's really easy to work out what type you have by digging up some of that soil and running it through your fingers. And what you'll find is sandy soil feels slightly gritty, it's really free draining, and it's quite light. Clay soil, on the other hand, is very heavy and you probably know it before you've even dug it up because it feels very fudgy. And then you've got silty soil, which is somewhere in between. But to be honest, there's very few pure soil types. So most people have either sandy or more clay-based soils. And by understanding what soil type you have, you'll know exactly what you need to do to keep certain plants thriving. Because sandy soil, for example, warms up really quickly, but it's free draining. So in the summer months, you may have to water more. So you're going to be looking for plants that can cope with drought. Whereas clay soil is heavy, full of nutrients, but very wet. So you're going to need plants that don't mind sitting with their roots in water for parts of the year. 
as I said, with silty soil, it's quite rare. So silty soil is a good soil for all sorts of different plants and you've not really got too much of a consideration. But most soil types are made up of three parts, either sandy, clay or silt-based soil. And then the third thing to look at when you're looking at the type of garden that you want to design is really what do you want to achieve from it? Are you thinking of growing a vegetable or kitchen garden? Do you want something purely ornamental? Something with high impact that's really vivacious and vibrant? Or somewhere really calming? Somewhere that you can go out and just switch off from the world? And this is a really important third step because it's going to really guide and steer you through your plant choices, colours, materials and the way that you want to lay the garden out. So really, the garden is made up initially of those three stages. So it's important that you consider these three points, because if you don't, you really are just rolling a dice and having a guess, which sounds great. You know, you'll go to a garden centre, you'll pick up some plants, you'll maybe buy some books. You get all enthusiastic, you pull together all these plans and colours and start putting them into your garden, you know, really carefree. But what you'll find is if you've got, say, a really heavy clay soil and you're trying to grow really Mediterranean plants, you know, like lavenders, things that need hot sun, free draining soil, you may find that they just don't thrive and they may even die off. And that can be really disheartening as a gardener. So by taking care to look at the aspects, the soil type and what kind of feel you want, you're going into, say, those garden centres or into that research phase with a really clear picture in your mind of what you want to achieve. And you can be super specific. You know, there are over 300,000 plant species out there. So there will be something that suits your garden. And the key is for you to get your pen and paper out and start finding plants that are going to work really hard in your garden without you necessarily having to put them on life support every couple of weeks. So if you do your homework, it's like a stitch in time saves nine. And you're going to start off with a bang and be far more successful with less failure and much more time just to sit and enjoy your garden for whatever you've designed it for. I think when you're considering garden styles, it's important to try and bring together, say, a plant list, a layout and materials that are sympathetic to that style. So, for example, if you're going for that Mediterranean-style garden, you may be looking at things like really warm terracotta colours, yellows, oranges, maybe some purples. You're looking for plants that are going to evoke that feeling of the Mediterranean and also work with the full sun and warmer soil that you'll need for that. So it probably would be, say, a sandy-based soil, a south-facing garden that will work well with that. So it's really taking all these different components of your specific spots and then applying planting and design to that. I think if I could give any more advice, it would be don't get too caught up on real specifics. If you're doing your best to look at the aspects of your garden, the soil, and you're making more learned decisions based on plants that will fit your garden, you can't go too wrong. There's a whole raft of information out there which shows you what you can do with different aspects and gardens. So make sure that you go out there and soak up all that information like a sponge and just do your best to apply it and, and you won't go far wrong. If you do make mistakes, it doesn't matter. You can learn from them, tweak your plans and carry on. Lee Burkhill. Creating the best indoor environment for growing is just as important as outside. So as part of our indoor plant care series, RHS advisor James Lawrence is here to help us find the perfect spots for our houseplants. 
Just like outdoor plants, houseplants will have different preferences with regards to things like light and temperature, humidity and water. So although no two houses will ever be exactly the same, certain rooms around your house are likely to be preferable for certain plants. I have to say it's worth always doing your research and it's always worth experimenting, which is something we always do in horticulture and gardening, because as I say, no two houses are exactly the same. So this is just a rough guide. Firstly, if you're lucky enough to have a very well lit room, and that could be something like in a large south facing window or something like a conservatory, somewhere that still gets fairly good light levels and particularly through winter, then you might be able to grow plants that might struggle in other conditions. So these tend to be plants that like hot, sunny conditions and maximum light exposure. And they normally show some kind of adaptation to the leaf. So they normally have either fleshy leaves or they might be plants that have spines like certain cactus or they could be plants that have hairy leaves or grey leaves. And again, these are all adaptations so that through the summer months in particular, these plants can reflect some of that light and not overheat. And they have processes within their structures, within their tissues, where they can store water. So these very well-lit windows and conservatories, plants such as agave and echeveria, kalanchoe are examples and also plants like crassula. So these are all succulent plants that have a fleshy leaf. Other things that have either a hairy or a silvery leaf, things like lantana, plectranthus and pelagonium, these are also good examples of plants that will prefer those conditions that are well lit and that can cope with those slightly higher light levels and, and potentially higher temperatures. Now, filtered lights is much more common within households. So these are rooms that basically get a good level of light through the year and relatively stable temperatures. Most people's living rooms, dining rooms, uh, depending on your house's orientation, would fit into this category, for example. So lots of foliage plants would fit into this kind of category for example so things like ficus benjamina the kind of weeping fig dracaenia the madagascar dragon tree alocasia which is known as elephant's ears so these are plants that may originate from growing under canopies or light canopies so they get filtered light rather than direct sunlight some of those can be quite large specimen or foliage plants um, but there are also things like gardenia and things like orchids, which will also benefit from that kind of filtered light conditions that will also be great in those kind of rooms with the appropriate care. In terms of rooms that might have lower light levels, and sometimes these rooms might also have fluctuating temperatures. So these are quite tough plants that maybe be able to cope with rooms such as hallways or rooms that maybe have windows that aren't so well insulated or that are particularly shady, for example. And there are a few plants that can cope with those conditions. And again, good research is the key here. So things like parlor palm can cope with that. Epirenum, the devil's ivy, is a good one for lower light conditions, for example. 
Philodendron scandens, the heart leaf is another one that springs to mind. So there really are plants that can suit every room once you know what those conditions in your room are like. And finally, rooms that perhaps have higher levels of humidity. Now, these are traditionally things like bathrooms and potentially some kitchens where hot water is being run for a period of time. So therefore, there's more moisture in the atmosphere. So particularly in bathrooms, there are plants that, again, their natural conditions mean that they are more suited for those environments. So a lot of indoor ferns, such as adiantium, the maidenhair fern, nephrolepsis, the sword fern, will do well in those conditions. Spider plants will do well in those conditions. If you're looking for a larger specimen, something like a monstera, with those large tropical leaves enjoys that extra humidity because it reflects their natural climate. Many orchids also like having some humidity in the air, so that could be a consideration as well. To summarise, really, in terms of where you put your houseplant, it's always worth looking back to where they originate from and what the kind of conditions that they enjoy in their natural environment. And if they come from a naturally shady place, then that might mean they do well in a shady room in your house. If they prefer a very humid tropical environment, then they might be better in a bathroom, for example. James Lawrence. In case you don't know, all RHS members receive a magazine each month that's packed full of gardening goodies. In it, you can read about leading garden designers, visit breathtaking green spaces and learn about exciting plants. February's issue of the Garden Magazine will be arriving over the next few days, so here's lovely editor Chris Young to talk through some of the highlights. So, Chris, what can we expect from this month's issue of the Garden? Well, I feel a bit of a fraud sometimes because I always say there's so much in each issue, but I don't know if that just comes from exhaustion or a reality check, but there's so much in this issue, Fiona. Um, But genuinely, I don't know what you're like when you read a February or March issue of a magazine, but for gardening, the February issue, it's a real first hint where spring is just around the corner, where we feel that we can actually get a little bit excited about longer light days and a little bit more warmth in the air. And I really hope that this issue kind of reflects that. We'll really get into that in March and definitely in April. But February, there's just this hint of warmth and excitement and that spring is coming. So we've got quite a few bits. As ever, we have our practical advice and our articles. We've got a really useful small article on how to plan a gravel garden. Gravel gardens are great for the environment and for water use and things. So getting your head round planning and creating a gravel garden is really good. Got a nice little spring garden in Cambridgeshire to remind us that there's a thing called snowdrops, in <laughs> case you'd forgotten, Fiona. Um, and then on the other end of snowdrops, there is a cactus garden in Italy and tons of advice on houseplants and succulents. There's this amazing feature, uh, four-page feature, all about weird and wonderful succulents. And it's like something from, you know, when you watch David Attenborough and you see all those weird creatures from the deep that have never seen a day of light. Some of these succulents are like this, they're fascinating. So that's kind of a snapshot about what's going in. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it's packed. I mean, one, obviously, because it's got a bit of our collection in it, one bit that caught my eye was your article on Constant Spry, which has got some lovely photographs from our archive of Constant Spry, because we're doing an exhibition with the Garden Museum. 
From your perspective, why do you think she's interesting? Apart from the fact that she's in our collection, of course. I think for me, Constance Bride is a name that we all know of. We don't actually really know much about her. To do something about a name that we know, and also to get Shane Connolly, not only a royal florist, but also the guest curator for the exhibition, to get to him into the Garden Magazine and to write about Constance Spry was a no-brainer. And I think for me, it was a great surprise. Clearly, people know about her for cut flowers and floristry and things. But, you know, her role in education, about empowering people and wanting people to develop, her love of plants and gardens, her part in the Dig for Victory campaign, who knew that? You know, and also her knowledge for cookery, which is obviously where we get coronation chicken from on the, on the Queen's coronation. Um, that's my still my most interesting fact about her. Um, so <laughs> putting all this together was a no-brainer. So it was lovely. And also, there's three pages of beautiful black and white stylish different era photography and it just takes you back to time before us but it just kind of reminds you of what that era looked like Mm, you wouldn't think that black and white photographs of floral arrangements would really work, but they really do. You say they're very sculptural and, and very styly. I had no idea that she designed these incredible vases, you know, that to set off her arrangements. I just didn't realise the kind of range. So the other feature that caught my eye as I've discussed already on the show I've got a shady garden and I choose to look on the kind of positive side and decide that that's actually a <laughs> urban woodland garden well that sounds so much grander <laughs> it does isn't it yeah. my urban woodland it's got two trees <laughs> but it is a woodland setting it's shady I have lots of woodland plants so I was really interested on the piece on woodland perennials so do you want to tell us all a bit more about that yeah this is a great piece as regular readers will know we always have a plant hero one subject that we go big on and we have our plate our photographic plate where we do the comparison of different cultivars and different plants and this month it's all about woodland perennials and it's written by a guy called Colin Ward. And Colin is a great and knowledgeable nurseryman. He's got this nursery called Swine's Meadow Farm Nursery. And his particular passion is woodland perennials. And really what the whole article does, it, it just celebrates the, the range of woodland perennials. And I don't know about you, but when you think of woodland perennials, you think of that sort of unfurling nature to them. The mm. fact that they're springing up and they're using the spring because they live under deciduous trees in nice, good soil. And they're using the energy that they've stored through the winter. And they're giving us that first big hit of spring foliage and spring flower. And that's what this article does. It just reminds you of all that pent up energy. These plants want to release it before the trees above them put their leaves on and then things get a little bit quieter through summer. And there's a great range in them. There's some really great leaf shapes like Podophyllum or Paris. And then there's Epimediums. There's Lily of the Valley. So I think there's going to be plenty of inspiration for you, Fiona Davison, with your very trendy urban chic woodland garden, where you you will be able to buy some of these plants. And, and I really hope, in all seriousness, it does show to people that there's loads of opportunity with shade. And, that, you know, we all dread it. We all hate dry shade. It's one of the most popular subjects that our advisors get asked about. But actually, as long as you get the soil right and keep on feeding the soil in terms of good soil structure, then actually just use the layers, use the canopy of the tree, try and maybe bring a bit of dappled light in or whatever, but use the right plants for the right place as ever. But there is hope. And your garden, if you follow Colin's advice, will be stunning. That's brilliant, Chris. I'm really looking forward to reading it all. Thank you. Thank you, Fiona. We'll hear more from Chris discussing wildlife with garden writer Kate Bradbury in a few weeks' time. Well, that's it for today's episode. If you'd like to read more about any of today's topics, visit our programme page at rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast 
or see the links in the show notes. Until next time, it's goodbye from me, Fiona Davison. Thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Crest robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.